Well, good morning and Merry Christmas and good morning online. Glad that you're able to join us as well. If you have a Bible, would you open to Hebrews chapter 2, please? Hebrews chapter 2, a passage we actually spent some time in a while back in our series on Hebrews, but we're coming back for our Christmas series, and we're going to look at this. I'm going to look at a number of verses. I will send you to Hebrews 2, and then if you keep a ready finger, also to 1 John 3. I found myself in a very strange, uh, I guess you could call it an argument the other day. It wasn't heated anyway. It was just processing and wrestling and, and discussing, but it was an argument over the wickedness of my heart versus the wickedness of somebody else's heart. Not like yours is more wicked than mine or mine is more wicked than yours, but just like you don't know the wickedness in my heart. We're processing um, you know, what we do, why we do it, what are our motives. And it was just an interesting conversation because it highlighted something that's a very significant reality in all of our lives if we pay attention to it, and that is that our hearts are much more complicated than we sometimes uh, think. In fact, the scriptures themselves say that our hearts are deceitful above everything else and desperately wicked. Who can know them? I can't even know my own heart. And all of us have within us things that we don't want to get out of us, right? We don't want others to know those things. And sometimes we uh, have brought those things under the blood of Jesus Christ and they are actually forgiven and yet there's still this element of shame. There's this element of of, uh, embarrassment. There's this element of, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this? Um, I'm sure you can probably relate to that. There are just things about us that are shameful. And however long we walk with the Lord and however much we understand his grace, there's still the dynamic that sometimes grabs hold of our hearts. And part of it is because we continue to be broken and sinful and it's true. You don't know the wickedness in my heart and I don't know the wickedness in my heart. And part of it is that we struggle with the kind of the aftermath of having been that and having God's grace poured into that and yet still remembering and sometimes having little help remembering because one of Satan's chief attacks is to accuse and to bring those things up, to throw those things up at us into our hearts and our minds. In in 1897, there was an article that ran in a major magazine in London that um, kind of dealt with this issue. It, it, it described Arthur Conan Doyle. Um, many of you will be familiar with his name. He wrote all the Sherlock Holmes stories and a number of other things. He was very prominent in Victorian England. And uh, the article described how he was having a conversation with a friend who had this kind of sociological theory that said there are so many skeletons in everyone's closet, if it was ever known, we could never live with ourselves, we'd just have to run away. And Conan Doyle, he was a a realist. He understood, yeah, there's things I'm ashamed of, there's things you're ashamed of, everyone's got those things. But I'm sure that, that that's probably a bit of an overstatement. And so to test it out, he sent an anonymous telegram to the most upright, virtuous, integrous, righteous person he could think of. He happened to be a church leader, and and the anonymous telegram said this, all is discovered, flee at once. And the guy disappeared from public eye and was never seen again. Now, that story ran in a magazine that is very much akin to the Babylon Bee, 
or to Mad Magazine. It's not actually true. Arthur Conan Doyle didn't actually do that. But the magazine ran it as a satirical article because there's truth in the story, even if it's not factual. And the truth is that we have things within that just grieve us and grieve others, grieve God, things that we're ashamed of or embarrassed by. And I was thinking over the last number of weeks, I've had so many conversations with people and, 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 and with the people I'm thinking of right now were like pastors and missionaries and leaders and people who have experienced God's grace and have advanced in their faith and, and they're, not, they're not posers. As far as I can tell, they're the real deal. They're really godly people, the ones that we hold up as examples. They are good examples. And yet in those conversations, there was this recurring theme with a whole, it was quite a few different people that came down to failure, regret, uh, shame, different things like that that would crop up over things that were genuine failures and, 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 and genuinely um, shame-inducing but then were also things that I, I was being attacked on or you were being attacked on by Satan, that he was just, just driving, just poking at, just stirring up, just trying to grieve. You ever experienced that? From time to time, I'll have people uh, share with me just how God has used me in their lives. And... Um, uh, that's, that's an encouragement, and I always appreciate that, and I'm thankful for it. Um, sometimes it's obvious people will give some really deep and very specific thought, and not long ago I was having a conversation where somebody was being very pointed and very specific and saying, here's what I see, and here's what I see, and here's what I see, and this has blessed me this way, this has encouraged me this way, this has been such a, such a great thing, you're such an example. And I found myself in that moment on two tracks. One was, it all rang true, right? I, you know, I, by God's grace, I really do try to live in integrity and everything they were saying, it's like, yeah, that's, tr- that's true, that's true, that's true. And, and I don't belong leading in God's church if I can't be an example to people. That's fundamental to my role. I am to be an example. And so I was being an example and I was encouraged by that. But there was another track running exactly the same time that was just as true and, and it was really a heart stab that said, yes, but I'm such a poor example. I'm such a poor example. There, and this isn't the precursor to some great confession. As far as I know, there's nothing in my life that would ever make some big expose but I'm just so deeply human and you don't know the wickedness in my heart and I don't know it either. And there's things that I just bring shame, bring, bring all kinds of sadness and heartache when they crop up. And those are things that are used. They can be things that move me towards God Right? And I can confess when I'm in actual sin. And he can cleanse and restore and grace and grow me. But sometimes even when I've done that, there's this lingering reality. And what's going on is there's an attack coming from Satan. Where he's seeking to tear me down. He's seeking to destroy what God loves. 
He can't directly harm God. So it goes after something vulnerable. Me. Right, in one conversation I had, I was talking with somebody and said, how are you feeling about this transition that came up? And there was a pause, and then they said, I feel ashamed. And looking at it from my perspective, I could see how they would feel ashamed. I don't think there was anything to be ashamed of, but that's how they felt. But in that moment, there's, we, we, when people feel the freedom and the safety to say something like that, we have a word to describe it, right? They were being vulnerable. They were putting it out there. And that's not just a, a catchphrase. They were vulnerable. What I did with that statement could destroy or could build up. Right? And because that's true in you and in me all the time, there are things we are always vulnerable and there is an enemy who will always take those statements, those realities, and use them to destroy. That's just one of the weapons, right? We have an enemy who has a much larger arsenal. That's just the thing that's been in my mind recently. Last, I think it was last Christmas Eve, I was talking about going around the neighborhood and all the different ornaments, and somebody has a blow-up Christmas dragon. And at first I thought, a Christmas dragon? That's crazy. And then I thought about it a little bit more and said, no, that's beautiful. Revelation 12 talks about the baby and the dragon. The Christmas story has a dragon in it. Right, and we're in this series that's just beginning when God was born. There was a time and a place where the infinite, eternal God chose to step into this world and become fully human. Didn't cease being God, but he took on himself flesh and blood just like you and me. The eternal son was born into this world as Jesus at Christmas time. When God was born, why was he born? Last week, Scott said he was born to reign, right? He was born to rule. This week, we're going to look at the theme, he was born to conquer. Not a normal Christmas theme that we think of, and it's one that gets kind of lost in the background when we think of Jesus coming. We think of him coming to save. We think of him coming to deliver. Those should be front and center, and we will be coming to those in a few weeks, of course. But there's more going on than simply that. He's also coming to conquer, and if you have Hebrews chapter 2 open in front of you, Let's read about this enemy of our souls, who, among other things, is the accuser. By the way, did you know that's what the word devil actually means? It means accuser, false accuser, slanderer. The word Satan actually means enemy or opponent. Right? There's truth in advertising even in his names. That's who he is. So here's what it says in Hebrews 2, not commonly thought of as Christmas verses, but they absolutely are. Verse 14 Since therefore the children, that's you and me, share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. He was born as a human. Christmas. Why? So that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. He was born to conquer. Christmas is a declaration of war. There's a Dutch theologian years ago named Abraham Kuyper, who is well known for a lot of things, but one phrase that particularly grabs people's attention, he said, there is not, I'm paraphrasing, there's not one square inch of this universe over which God does not constantly call out mine. 
And Christmas was God stepping into the world saying, mine, and I'm here to take it back. I'm here to possess this in a whole new way. And I'm here to dispossess the false ruler, the false god. So when Jesus is born into the world, Christmas is fundamentally a declaration of war, and he came to destroy the devil and, verse 15, deliver all those who, the, who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So there it is. He's come to destroy Satan and to deliver us. If you can turn over there quickly enough, 1 John chapter 3, you can read the whole context when you have time. I'm just going to highlight one part of a verse. 1 John 3, the second half of verse 8 says that the reason the Son of God appeared, the reason for Christmas, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's not the only reason. I don't even think that was the number one reason, but it is a fundamental and significant reason. He has come to destroy Satan and to destroy his works, and I desperately need that because... I am one of those who, through fear of death, was held in slavery for so long. I was one who lived in the kingdom of darkness and, by the grace of God, had been brought into the kingdom of the Son. And I am one who is still subject to being attacked, to temptation, to the lies, and to the accusations. And so the fact that Jesus entered this world and the fact that Christmas is fundamentally and significantly in part to destroy Satan and his works. May not be all that hallmarky, but it's really good news. It's really good news. In fact, if we look at the very end of the story, I'll just read this to you, but in Revelation 19, Jesus is appearing and it says, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And then the outcome of that, the rest of chapter 19 on in the verse 20, kind of the resolution point, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. He defeats Satan. Now, that's the third chapter from the end of the book. If you want to turn over to the third chapter from the beginning of the book, Genesis 3, that's where everything goes off the rails. Everything from the third chapter to the third from the last chapter is all messed up, but it's about how God is dealing with the mess. And then the first two chapters are, isn't this cool? And the last two chapters aren't, isn't this cool? But in the middle of that, we have Christmas that makes that whole huge section actually work and actually be a season to celebrate. So Genesis 3, if you want to follow along. You're welcome to join me there. It's a familiar verse. Genesis 3, verse 15. God is having a conversation. Adam and Eve have chosen rebellion. They wouldn't have characterized it that way, but that's exactly what it was. They chose to exercise their own sovereignty instead of join with God in his. And they did that in cahoots. Satan was there tempting. And they said, hey, that's a good idea. I like your thinking better than God's. That's what I'm going to do. It messed everything up. 
And then as the chapter unfolds, we see consequences, we see uh, wrath, we see judgment, and we see God speaking to each of them, to Adam, to Eve, and to Satan who has taken over a serpent. And that's what we'll read right here is God's words to Satan. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. Everything between Genesis 3 and Revelation 19 and 20 is either preparing for that accomplishing that or seeking to live in light of that having been accomplished. That's the pivot point, and that pivot point is anchored in Christmas. When we come to our special high holidays, the holy days, um, they all come together. There's actually, you, you can't consider them separately because it's all one reality that God is accomplishing that begins at Christmas when Jesus is born into this world. It begins in our time, in our world. He's doing work long before that. But it takes on a whole new character when God himself steps onto the scene at Christmas. And then he, when God himself, as Jesus, goes to the cross and sacrifices himself, he does some amazing things. He satisfies God's wrath and he conquers the enemy of our souls. When he rises from the dead, he conquers death and offers life, and when he returns to heaven, he ascends into glory and pours out his spirit. That package is God dealing with everything that's gone wrong in the world, and it's him saying, all of this is mine, and I'm here to take it back, and at Christmas time is when that clock, in a very real sense, starts ticking in a way that we can really see and hear because God has entered the world and the Son of God has come to destroy Satan and to destroy his works. He's come to deliver me, yes, but it's not just, hey, I can, I can take you out of this. It's, I'm gonna fix it, and in order to fix it, I have to destroy the one who's doing so much damage. And, and throughout the scripture, Satan kind of lurks in the background, right? Sometimes he's real obvious and sometimes he's not. Every once in a while, we get a, a, a dialogue going where we can hear Satan talk with God or um, where we can hear him talk with Eve or things like that. Or, or we, we get allusions to it. But if, if, you, if you just think your way through scripture and just look at how he's described, he's described as this terrible enemy. Remember, Satan means the enemy, the opponent, the adversary. He's the one who has power. He's got great power. If you remember the story of Job, he has the power to incite war. He has the power to change the weather. And he has the power ultimately over life and death. Now, thankfully, Job makes it clear that's on God's leash. But Satan has that kind of power. Jesus calls him the strong man. And he warns Peter, he says, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat doesn't tell us what that is, but I don't know about you. I don't like the idea of being sifted like wheat. He's powerful and he's evil. He's a liar and he's the father of lies. He is the God of this world. He is the ruler of this present age. The whole world lies within his control. And the world system is one of the ways he controls it. All that is not of God, the way that we think, the way that we build society on 
the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. He is the tempter who will come and constantly tempt. He tempted Eve, he tempted Jesus, and he will tempt you and me over and over and over again. He attacks. He's the roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. And that even includes God's own people. Satan sifts Peter. Satan lures Demas with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Demas, part of Paul's missionary team, falls in love with the world, which is exactly what John warns against. He fills the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira to lie and to be self-serving. He's always at work. He's not infinite. He doesn't make me do it. That phrase from my childhood that Flip Wilson always used to say, the devil made me do it, it's not actually technically true. But it's also not false. It's kind of in this liminal space of, I still have choice, but he's powerful and he is compelling and he is devious and he is, I am no match for him. When Jesus comes into the world, he comes in to address that reality too. He's coming for everything. He's coming for me, but he's coming for everything. And so he is going to depose the ruler of this world. The words used in, um, in Hebrews and in 1 John, it's interesting. Just stop and think about that. It doesn't say he came to curb Satan and limit his works. Doesn't say he came to contain Satan and minimize his works. Doesn't say he came to reduce Satan's territory and limit his influence. Says he came to destroy him. Came to destroy Satan, came to destroy his works, obliterate, overpoweringly remove, not even defeat, not even overcome, not even overthrow, but absolutely destroy. That's what he came for. And that's where the Christmas story gets just a little weird, if we're honest, a little bit surprising. Because when we think of a battle that's to be fought and fell deeds that are to be done, right? We think of these great heroes. We got a supervillain greater than any supervillain that's ever been thought of by Marvel and certainly by DC, <laughs> Right? Because Satan is real and he's more powerful than anything or anyone they ever conceived of and he's more evil than anything or anyone Stan Lee ever thought of. Right? We need a superhero. We need Hulk smash, right? And, and that's not what we get in the story. The story doesn't unfold intuitively for us and I think that's important. I think that'll be helpful for us as we try to now live, as we try to walk away from this reality, this message, and say, what does this mean as I live it out, right? Even, even if we boil it down and say, well, maybe not the Incredible Hulk, but just some, you know, something impressive. I mean, the, the, the Savior comes on the scene. He should look like Aaron Donald, right? Like the, the, the defensive lineman for the, the Los Angeles Rams that terrifies everybody. 
He's an absolute terror on the field. He's six foot one and 280 pounds, and he can bench press 500 pounds. He did 35 reps of 225, just boom, 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 boom. It's amazing the strength this guy has. He's incredible. They double team him, and he still has more sacks than anyone. He is a force to be reckoned with. Wouldn't the Savior be like Aaron Donald? Or if you're a little older, maybe even more like Larry Allen, the lineman for the Cowboys? He was six foot three and 325 pounds, and he could bench press 700 pounds. He did 43 reps, just boom. He was the guy that you could be, you could be a defensive lineman his same size, and you still stood no chance. He would obliterate the defense. In fact, he would take away the element of surprise. You could be lined up opposite him, and he might go, a train whistle saying, here's what's going to happen. I'll tell you this play. We went back into the huddle. Supposed to be secret. I'll tell you. Emmett Smith is going to be right where you are in 1.2 seconds. And you won't be there. You will be five yards that way on your back, looking up at the sky, wondering what just happened. And there's not a thing you can do about it. I mean, that's what I would expect. God's come to defeat a powerful enemy. It should be pretty obvious and pretty powerful. And in fact, that's one of the hangups. When Jesus' ministry unfolds, it doesn't look like people expect, and he certainly doesn't start that way. He's not 6'3 and 225. He's 20 inches long. He weighs six or seven pounds. He cries when he teethes, and he wets himself all the time. And he can't lift anything. He has to be carried. And it's a very slow process from there to actually a fairly quiet, humble life. There's nothing about it that is intuitive. It doesn't look like the great warrior coming to do battle. Don't let that confuse you. Don't miss the fact that Christmas is God is born to conquer. And then when he does his conquest, that's even less intuitive for us, right? Hebrews 2, again, says he came partook in flesh and blood, so that through death he might destroy. The cross seems like a very strange battle plan. But it's a strange battle plan only because we're oversimplistic. And that is a problem. See, God's doing much more than we tend to think of. There's a whole lot he's doing. I'm sure we have no clue what it is. He tells us at least some of what he's doing. Part of why he does it the way he does in that quiet, patient, slow-growing, and is-it-really-happening kind of way is because he came to destroy Satan without destroying you and me. Second Peter 3 makes it clear. People are complaining. God, yeah, God's not doing anything. He's never going to do anything. That's just a joke, cosmic joke. And Peter says, oh, don't, don't you believe that? God is not slow. A day, that's where this verse comes from, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. God's very purposeful, and here's his purpose. He wants to give space for people to respond. See, to come in and just destroy, doesn't just destroy Satan, it destroys everyone. Because we are not simply enslaved, we are responsibly complicit 
right? The warfare with Satan is only part of the story. There's the rescue from myself, from God's wrath and righteous judgment, the purification for sin, all of that that we will come to in later messages. We're just focusing on the Satan aspect this morning. He's come to destroy Satan, and he's come to destroy his works. And the way he does it isn't real intuitive to us. Let me read you a passage out of Colossians chapter 2. It says, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, talking about us, God made alive together with him, talking about Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, talking about Satan and his minions, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. It's the cross. It's the work of Jesus on the cross that is that death blow, and it doesn't, it's not intuitive that I'm going to defeat you by dying, but that's exactly what happens, and it strips Satan. It strips him of his power. It strips him of his authority, but it doesn't remove him. And that's the challenge. There's so much hope and so much good news in the Christmas message, and yet I still have these conversations where we're kind of going back and forth. You don't know the wickedness of my heart. Nobody's being snarky. It's actually painful. As I was meditating on this passage the other day and just thinking, I am such a bad example of Jesus, I broke down. It's like, ah, who will deliver me from me? And who will deliver me from all the baggage that I carry, that even though I have been forgiven and I have been brought into this transformative relationship, even though the Spirit is within me, even though I am new creation in Christ, I still mess up sometimes. And I still wrestle with all the things that aren't as they should be. There's a verse in Romans that I think is really helpful. Dealing with the same theme. In verse six, in chapter 16, verse 20, it says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So here's the story of Christmas. Jesus came into the world to destroy Satan and his works. And Jesus emphatically and profoundly did that. Asterisk but it's not yet been brought to completion. And so I live in this space where Jesus has come and conquered and yet Satan has not been removed, where I have been made right and righteous in him, but I still struggle in my day-to-day journey and where sometimes the accuser comes at me and just badgers and bludgeons me. And he's defeated. But sometimes I'm defeated too because I listen. And Romans 16 is this word of hope that says, hey, the work is done at the cross. 
but it's not fully completed. Don't grow weary. Don't lose hope. Soon. Soon. God will crush Satan under your feet. Even though that seems remote right now. Now, a couple of takeaways as we think about this as part of our Christmas celebration. How do I live in that liminal space? That already, but not yet. That reality has absolutely shifted, but it's still not completely experienced. Satan is a roaring lion whose teeth have been pulled, but sometimes his gums are pretty devastating to me. And he still attacks, and he still accuses, and he can still deceive if I don't guard my mind and my heart. What do I do? Two things I would encourage. One is God word, and one is, if I can say it that way, Satan word. Right? Here's, here's the God word side. Be patient. Be patient. If the Christmas story tells us anything, is that God is working out things. He will absolutely work them out, but he's working them out in non-intuitive, surprising, and sometimes baffling ways to me. And he does not operate on my time schedule. I think that's why so many exhortations in the New Testament are to have faith and to persevere. And even Jesus saying, when I return, will I find faith on the earth is in the context of when it seems to me that God is not acting the way that he's supposed to act. He's not answering prayer the way he's supposed to answer it. I don't understand it. And he's saying, you have to trust me, right? I have to be patient to live in faith and to live in faithfulness. I have to live in faith and I have to live in faithfulness and I have to get those two words right. That's really huge. I think one of the challenges that I see in so many lives, my own included, is that the, the object of faith and the goal of faithfulness gets squirrely sometimes. One of the reasons I struggle is because God is not acting the way that I think he ought to act. I need to be careful because that may be an indicator that my faith has slid off of its foundation. And I'm having trust, I'm having trust issues with God because I'm trying to trust a process when I'm supposed to trust a person. I'm trying to trust some promise that he's made in some way that I expect he's going to fulfill it. And he's never told me to do that. He's told me to trust him as a person. Have you noticed this? Persons, people are incorrigibly autonomous. They don't do what you want them to do. And the more you try to manipulate and control them, the less personhood they actually have. Why would God be different, especially since he is absolutely sovereign and he is absolutely perfect? Of course he doesn't act the way that I expect. And if I put my trust in certain outcomes, even outcomes that he's defined for me, I should believe his promises, but don't put the trust in the promises. The scripture, I think, a legitimate lens would be to say, look at all the promises God made that confused everyone, drove them crazy. Sometimes they ran away in the wrong direction and did really stupid things because they forgot God got to fulfill the promise the way he wanted and how he wanted and when. Think about the story of Abraham. Think about the story of Joshua. You want me to attack the city how? 
I, this, over and over again, God makes a promise which he invariably without fail keeps, but he doesn't do it the way that we think. And sometimes my struggle is because my faith, I'm not trusting in a person, I'm trusting in a process, I'm trusting in a promise. It's shifted off its foundation. And then I'm struggling and then I'm vulnerable. I'm vulnerable to the things that have always comforted me. I'm vulnerable to the temptations and the lies that will, will be coming at me because though the enemy is defeated, he's not removed. I need to be patient. I need to have faith, and I need to live faithfully. Faithfully. And there's a subtle shift that I find happening there, and even the most mature, it certainly happens in my life. It is easy sometimes for me to pursue a purpose over a person. Faithfulness is defined per personally too. I need to live a purposeful life. I need to live on mission. I need to live all these things that we're constantly called to do. I need to do that. And, and those of us who grow in the grace and knowledge of God embrace that and we start to pursue that. We start to live that. We live for God's glory. My purpose is to glorify you. Don't do it perfectly, but that's what I'm about. Be careful in the very good that's there. I can sometimes see faithfulness just tied to the purpose. It's like, no, it's got to be tied to the person. It's gotta, I'm faithful to Jesus. Faithful to Jesus. Here's what happens, I think, at least in me, when it becomes about faithfulness to some purpose. When it gets hard, when I get worn down, when I get weary, I start to wonder if it's worth it. I know he's worth it. Are you? <laughs> Am I? Is this? And sometimes I become more vulnerable. Sometimes I make foolish choices. Right? I need to be patient with God. Jesus did come into the world to change everything, beginning by defeating the enemy of our souls, who is creating such havoc. But he's working it out over time in his way. I need to have faith in him. I need to be faithful to him and let him work his grace out in my life over time. Faithfulness over time. Faith over time. Rooted in him. Be patient. Second thing. Satan word, if I can say that. Again, every time I say that, it sounds a little odd, but what do I need to do? Don't listen. That's it. Don't listen. Right, if I stand in the power of the Spirit in my position in Jesus Christ, Satan cannot manipulate me. He only has the ability to do what God will allow him to do. And there may be specific things God allows at certain times. There's some examples in Scripture of that. But overwhelmingly, it says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Right, the full frontal assault, once I wake up to it, is a no-starter for him but I don't think that's how he most often likes to work in our lives. If I'm not guarding my heart and my mind, the world, the flesh, the, 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 the world system, the, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, those can be lures, I can be tempted, right? I can believe his lies. But I wanna focus just a little bit on the accusation piece, because that's where we started, and I just wanna maybe give a little encouragement to those of us that are strugglers and those of us that are perhaps a little soul-weary, 
because there can be times when it's just like, I'm just, just so beaten down. Satan loves to accuse. And in his accusations, he will tell the truth and lies about me and about God. And there's enough truth in there that it, if I'm not careful, it gets root and it just wreaks havoc in my soul. Think about the story of Job. Satan comes, and it's more complicated than this, but if we boil down the satanic side of it, Satan is accusing Job. He's accusing Job of being a poser. He's accusing Job of having a defective and weak faith. He's accusing Job of being a taker. That's what he's accusing Job of. Well, he's not a poser. His faith is weak and defective, as everyone's is. And he is a taker. Think about that. There is no other relationship a human being can have with God. By definition, you and I, with God, are only takers. For from him and to him and through him are all things. Everything I have is from him. Even when I give him something, even when I worship or serve, it's like the child who is taken by one spouse, one parent to the store to buy some gift for Christmas for the other parent using the parent's money and the parent's car and the parent's wisdom and all of those things. Everything is given to the child to give back to the parent. And that's a very weak analogy. Everything, my breath, my life, my thought, physicality, the universe, it all comes from him. We are only takers. Yeah. Now there's a right and wrong way to be a taker. But see, Satan is attacking Job by mixing in things that are true and things that are false. Or a more dramatic, I think, point of accusation is found in the book of Zechariah. After the exile that Craig talked about starting the service, Babylonian exile, people of Israel come back and it's, it's pretty sad. And God sends a number of prophets to kind of encourage and prop them up. Two of them are Haggai and Zechariah. And they have two good leaders. These are good guys. They're trying to follow the Lord. One's name is Zerubbabel. He's the governor. The other one's name is Joshua. He's the high priest. But just like every follower of God, they are riddled with weakness and foolishness and sin. And we have this glimpse of an encounter where Satan is trying to accuse Joshua. And I'll read it to you. This is Zechariah 3. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this, Joshua, a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel of the Lord clothed with filthy garments. That is such a mild way of saying it. He is, he is wearing excrement-saturated robes, standing in the presence of God, filthy, disgusting, and reeking. Now, this is a vision, this is symbolic. It's not the high priest of Israel is not going into his bathroom and soaking his clothes in the toilet before he goes out to serve before the Lord. It's saying, no, this is, this is the spiritual reality. And Satan is there to accuse him. 
It's actually true, his robes are actually like that. There's actually deep flaws and sins and Satan is there to poke at those. But he's gonna poke at them in a way that also induces lies. Yes, you're a miserable wretch. Yes, you're a failure. And the grace of God doesn't work here. And everything about you is a lie. Wait, 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 wait. No, 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 no. I am a sinful, wretched person who doesn't even know the wickedness of my own heart. But I'm also a real deal. I really do love the Lord. And I really do seek to follow him. And his grace really is real. And his spirit really is working. And you're telling me lies about God too. You're telling me lies that he already answered. He told the Galatians, what kind of fools are you to think that you're saved by grace and now you have to earn it? Right? That's what Satan's doing. And that's something that's still in his arsenal. And for those of us that are prone to struggle, it's a powerful weapon. And even those of us that aren't prone to struggle, there are times we just get soul weary. We just get worn down. It's a powerful weapon. Jesus came into the world to destroy Satan and his works. That has been emphatically begun at the cross. It's not been worked out completely. And I live in that spot. And in this moment, when I think about God, I need to be patient. I need to trust him. And I need to be faithful to him by his grace. And when I think about Satan, I don't even need to tell him to shut up. God's already done that. In the story of Zechariah, notice Satan doesn't get a word out. Like, he's standing ready to accuse, and immediately the angel says, God rebuke you. Read Romans 8, if you need to be encouraged. Starts by saying there's no condemnation, and it comes in the midst of the struggle and trauma of trying to live as really frail humans in this world. But there's no condemnation, and then it goes on in the 31, 32, somewhere in there. It shifts, and it says, Who's going to accuse us? We've been made right by God, and Jesus is our intercessor, and nothing will separate us from God's love. That's the good news. That's the beauty of Christmas. Jesus came into the world to destroy Satan and his works, and that's (coughs) begun, and what I can now experience is enough to secure me in this moment. A few weeks ago, I read a poem by Dietrich Bonhoeffer when he was in prison, kind of wrestling with the dynamics of this because people could see him and he was seeking to live faithfully and so all of these good things from God were showing and his, his uh, captors were admiring him and he's like, yeah, I guess that's true but at the same time I know what's in my heart and I feel like, I feel like a bird that's being crushed and all these, is it, am I this or am I that? Am I this or am I that? That's kind of the refrain and then it ends by saying, am I this or the other? I don't know, only this, you know, God, I am yours. And that's the final resting place. And that's what Jesus came to make real. And I can stand there. I'd like to ask the ushers to come. We'll take our offering. Lord, um, thank you. Thank you for entering this world for me. And for everyone in this room, everyone who's watching online, everyone in this world, Lord, I know. I know the mystery of how you work that out is beyond us. 
But for me, for this one person, I am just grateful for how you have reached me. And I'm grateful for how you have begun to change everything. And that you have put the adversary of our souls to open shame at the cross. And that you have freed us from his domain and brought us into your kingdom. And that we can resist him and he will flee. And that you've given us the ability to recognize his lies. And Father, I thank you that Jesus is your divine shut up to Satan. He has nothing he can say. Would you remind us of that, Lord? May we not take holiness lightly, but may we also not assume some moralistic, we got to fix it kind of way. May our lives revolve around relating and knowing and being known by and living out your life and the power of your spirit as your beloved over time. Would you grant us faith and faithfulness? Would you use these gifts, Lord, to further the good news? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.